Well, good morning again. Uh, it's great to see you all this morning. Um, my name is Andrew. I'm one of our pastors. Um, I'd like to uh, begin by introducing our sermon this morning. So uh, God, has, God has richly blessed our church uh, with a lot of gifted people, as he, as he promised us he would with every church, right? Um, it, and when you look around this room this morning and you walk in and you feel the, the warm embrace of the Christmas Advent decorations, um, we have the, the lovely Malsberries to thank for that. So I know they, would, they don't want me to say this, but yes. Um, Lynn is, has all of her magical touch on all this whole room. And Mark handmade this star. Great job, Mark. Um, so, so huge thank you to them because, um, yeah, it's great to walk in and see all the beauty around us. Uh, but this morning for our, for our sermon, as we begin our Advent series, um, as I said, God has blessed our church with, with gifted people, and we want to give um, gifted people opportunities to use those gifts. And so uh, we like to take this time of year to, to help encourage and raise up and, um, and help give people opportunities to teach that don't normally get opportunities to teach. So this morning we get to do that. So we, what we normally do, as we will this morning, is um, we, we partner up one of our pastors with um, a young brother who we would love to hear uh, preach the word of God to us. So this morning we get to hear from um, our friend Tristan, who uh, Tristan Gallion, who has been a part of our church for a while. He's, he's done a lot with our, our young adults and our RAD program, and he's been a faithful brother in, in, in and among us for, for many years. So we get to hear um, him partner up with our, our pastor Joel this morning to, to bring us the word from Romans 3. So let me just pray, and I'll welcome Tristan up, uh, and I'll hand over the, the reins to them as he brings the word to us this morning. Let me pray. God, thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for this season. We thank you for what it represents and what it means. Um, and God, as we engage into this season, we ask for your help. Uh, we know that this season comes with a lot of things, trappings and busyness. And, um, but God, right at the heart of it, right at the core of it, um, is something really sweet and something that we can really celebrate. And if we, can, if we can sort of see through the clutter and see through the fog a little bit, um, it's a really sweet time of worship uh, that you have, you have come to us. You have come to save us, Jesus, and we praise you for that. And so this morning, I pray that you would help us to do that as we see your word, as we, as we listen to your word, as we engage with your word. Um, would you, by your spirit, help us uh, to have hearts of worship, to have hearts that are engaged with you? Would you lift up our eyes off of the things that are below to the things that are above this morning um, by your Spirit's help. And so we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Microphone is work? Okay. Yeah, so uh, Greg read our passage this morning, and I was once again reminded about something that Joel and I were joking about, is that it's a big downer of a passage, you know, a little bit of a bummer, you know, and uh, whoever was going to read it, now Greg, uh, ushered in all this sadness, you know, into the room. Um, but of course, you know, this is just a, a snippet of Romans, like we know from the... Uh, pastors, you know, series, and just from, you know, that's pretty recent, and just from our time in the Word, that Romans is full of grace, right? Like, the rest of the book is full of grace. So that's a little bit of our um, mental backdrop here, but um, we do, in order to fully understand grace, we do have to um, become familiar with our, with our need, right? So 
uh, God through Jesus usher, ushers in this huge grace, and to fully appreciate that, we need to understand our need for a Savior. So um, that's what Joel and I are going to talk about today, um, why Jesus needed to come, why his advent was necessary. So um, you also might remember from when I think Andrew spoke on this passage um, a couple months ago, the preceding passages, Romans 1 and 2, are uh, condemnation of the Jews and the Gentiles, like universal sin, right? And so this chapter 3 is like the summation of all of that, you know, um, the, uh, yeah, everyone is under sin, that's kind of how it um, starts his, uh, this is the landmark passage for uh, total depravity, and somebody told me I shouldn't use theological terms up here, but like, it's our, um, our belief, not that everybody is as bad as they could be, right, but our belief that um, everyone is corrupted by sin in, in, a, in a total sense, right? Um, I read a uh, sermon from a pastor in California, and at the time that, and he, he made an analogy this way, at the time that he was writing, uh, Alaska was not yet a state, so it's pretty ancient history, like the 50s or something, <laughs> and uh, he, he had said, at the time, California was home to the, the highest point in America. It was Mount, uh, Mount Whitney. And the lowest point in America, elevation-wise, uh, Death Valley. So it's like 14,000 feet to like negative 500 or something like that. And uh, he said, we often think of morality in these kinds of terms. Like we look at the most depraved of society, uh, maybe murderers, violent criminals, dictators, um, and they're the Death Valley sort of people. And uh, we look at others, maybe the most holy among us, the Mother Teresa, you know, people with a lot of fruit, service to the poor, all that sort of stuff. And maybe they're Mount Whitney. And we chill in the middle. He didn't say chill back then, but <laughs> we live in the middle, you know, maybe like Orange County, you know, or, or Palmdale, right? Somewhere in the middle, reasonably above sea level, right? Like, you know, maybe I speed a little bit. I don't really understand taxes, so I might be a financial criminal. But <laughs> in the whole scheme of things, like I treat people with respect, I love my family, I love my church, you know, I give to charity, all those things. Like I'm a moral person. The, the problem with that sort of thinking, which is our natural way, our natural relative comparison thinking, is that we haven't yet established a standard, right? This, uh, this guy, Donald from the 50s, he said, um, you could no more easily reach the moon from Mount Whitney than you could from Death Valley. When you introduce the standard of the moon, both of those things are ridiculous, right? There's, there's no, no difference. They also had not been to the moon yet in 1950. But, <laughs> so it's not a perfect analogy, but that's the, uh, the comparison of how we think to God's system. It is opposite our natural understanding. Our heart loves relative comparison because we want to downplay our sin for sure. Um, and that's not how God works, right? Um, the, the, the biblical truth is universal in comparison to a perfectly holy God, um, which Paul will walk us through. So we'll go kind of verse by verse here. Um, <laughs> verse 9 says, uh, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Under sin, you know, that's the, the, big, the big one here. There's, of course, there's no difference um, depending on your background, where you are in the corners of the earth, all this sort of stuff, because we are all in slavery to sin. We're bound by that. We can't escape the 
captivity of our sins. So that's his uh, Paul's thesis statement, right? The, the beginning of this section, this is his main point, and the rest is all the evidence. Verses like 10 through um, 18 are various references to the Old Testament. Like most of them are Psalms. If you have a uh, if you have a reference Bible, it's like boom, 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 boom. You know, reference, reference, reference. So one of them is Isaiah. Um, but that's all his evidence to to prove this point. And that evidence from the Old Testament is already proven. You know, it is already established that man has sinful hearts. So he's making making his case like like your boss might tell you to do, like make your case with like facts and data, you know, not just like your opinion. And um, so that's what, he do, that's what he's doing. Um, he talks about in those next couple verses, 10 to 18, of like a, a totally corrupted body. You know, he, he walks through like our mind, our heart, our mouth, our feet, our eyes. The, they're all corrupted. Like your mind, like what you think is corrupted by sin. Your heart, what you desire is corrupted by sin. Your, your mouth, what comes out of you is corrupted by sin. Your feet, where you go is corrupted by sin. Your, your eyes, how you, you process information is corrupted by sin, right? So first up is our mind and our heart, uh, 10 and 11. Um, they say, as it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, and no one seeks for God. We understand that no one is righteous. That is uh, pretty already implied from the, 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 the thesis that everyone is a slave to sin. But no one understands. That's a little bit um, offensive to our natural way of thinking as well. This is not a, uh, it's not an intellectual sort of understanding. This is a, a totally different thing. Like as um, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not understand the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. And uh, we are totally corrupted, right? And so, of course, we can't understand. No matter how uh, intellectually capable, you know, no matter how rigorous our study, right, we are not capable of understanding the holiness of a perfectly holy God and the depravity of a totally corrupted man. Um, we don't seek God because we don't love him. To kind of peek into the, the beginning of the, of the next verse, we turn away from God, and of course that's to be expected because we don't love God. How do you turn to God without kind of the root cause of that, like a, a love for him? So verse 12, after that section, it says, Together, well, let's read the whole thing. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Another offensive statement. <laughs> Together we have become worthless. I mean, that's, that's pretty harsh, again, against our natural will. Like, you would never say that to another person, that they have no value or no contribution, right? Like, especially those, like, nice, respectful people, we are pro-silver lining, you know? <laughs> like, uh... Any, any sort of like little, you know, like you're like in a meeting and somebody says something, uh, and like, but you still try to scrape something out of it into the consensus, right? Because we want to respect people because we love people, you know, there's a positive motivation there, right? But this is a totally different thing. There is no positive outcome or contribution from our part of that. You know, there's a, a, a huge, the gap in holiness is infinite, right? So there is no Contribution, um, yeah, it's very against our natural way of thinking. Verses uh, 13 and 14, you need a lot of visual imagery. Um, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. 
their throat is an open grave is one of the first things I ever underlined in my Bible because, you know, I thought it was a sin to write in the Word. But um, <laughs> it's, it gives you, like, the, the heebie-jeebies, you know? It's a big, um, like, a powerful image of what's inside of you. Like, an open grave is, like, exposure to the, the rot and the decay. Like, in, in the physical sense of a body, it's super gross, right? But um, that is not only something that exists out in the world, like rot and decay. That is what's within, you know, like what's coming out of you, like, uh, or what's, what's c- coming out of the natural man, you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, so that's, that's really, really powerful. Um, fortunately, God is very gracious, right? We don't want to forget that, of course. Um, and there's, there's a lot left to, to go. It also says the, the venom of asps, which is a snake, thanks Google, is under their lips. So we spread our sin or at the very least are poised to spread sin to others. Like from our, our influence on them, we are all corrupted and we're just corrupting each other all the time, infinitely um, and forever. This is the, the natural state of man. And again, full of curses and bitterness, the, the fruit of what's inside you being in an open grave, the fruit of that is curses and bitterness. Uh, we see the same thing. That's our, our speech, you know, our heart and our mind. We see the same thing kind of in our actions. Talks about the feet, verses 15, uh, and the next couple after that. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. So the feet, the, the places that you go, you know, the, your kind of generally speaking, your, your path, your uh, direction, is corrupted as well. Shocker, right? Everything is corrupted at this point. And of course, your, your way in life is going to be corrupted because of all the, all the inputs are corrupted. It also means that we cannot compartmentalize our sin. You can't have sinful inputs and not have sinful outputs, right? Um, our sin naturally from the heart, right, works itself out into our actions, into the, into the world, you know, a world full of sinful men. It expresses itself through what we do. And a huge part of that, I think this is a nice like end cap of the totality uh, sinful man um, image. Is this verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Um, our sin is the proof that we don't fear God, right? If we did fear God, if we feared judgment, um, we would turn to God. That's natural. You know, you do we do things out of fear all the time, you know. Um, but the, the way that we, the very way that we process the world, like through our eyes, we're intaking the information that we use to make decisions and uh, all that sort of stuff. Even that is corrupted because we do that from a, a man-centered perspective, right? Um, so even your, your way of analyzing what's out there, which is corrupted by sin, but your way of analyzing what's corrupted by sin is also corrupted by sin. You know, it's like, and um, the, the, yeah, and that feeds into all of those things. We think human-centered, we live human-centered, we desire human-centered or, or, or self-centered. And that's, the, that's the, the crux of our need for a savior, right? Oh, yeah, we have a, a positive, uh, a fun title because a uh, downer passage, so... Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, the crux of everything is our inherent, our totally corrupted sin, which is self-centeredness. It's poisoned our very being, right? 
And this is established really early in the story of Romans, right? We're at chapter 3 out of uh, 16, right? And it, we will continue to unfold that grace. But at this point, like, our need is uh, well established. You know, the, the verdict has been, like, levied against us, right? In the, in the Advent context, we're in the first week of four unfoldings where we um, prepare and celebrate the fact that Christ came to earth and ushered in that grace like we talked about at the beginning. A, a, it was a savior that we totally and utterly needed. You know, that's that's un- undeniable from this passage. You know, um, Paul makes his, makes his case pretty, pretty clearly, right? Um, and our need was so, so great that we, of course, could not fulfill it on our own, which um, Joel will talk about uh, Christ as the total fulfillment of our deep, deep need. Thank you. Uh, Tristan, for getting everyone pumped up, feeling good. <laughs> good job. Uh, so last night, uh, we, we started Advent with our kids, which is really good for us. Like, we were only one day late, and we're usually <laughs> way, I mean, it's like two weeks earlier than we ever are starting Advent. And so I asked the kids um, as we were getting started <clears throat> uh, if they could tell me what Advent was. And so Liam, like, immediately is like, goes into this, like, really good summary, like, deep, really good understanding of what Advent is. Great summary, three minutes he's done. I was like, dude, that was awesome. Do you want to preach for me tomorrow? <laughs> and, and he just kind of chuckles and, and doesn't say anything. Well, then fast forward a little bit, and, and I wanted to say goodnight to him. And as I'm leaving his room, he said, hey, Dad, I don't think I want to preach tomorrow. <laughs> so, so instead of the three-minute version, I'm going to say basically the same thing in about 25 minutes. Uh, so the question we're looking at today is, is why did Jesus need to come? Why was his advent necessary? Um, and Tristan did a great job of, of really setting that stage of, of helping us to see our need um, to identify our position. Um, so our sin, uh, it, it's pervasive, it's completely taken over, and it separates us uh, from the Father. So to understand, um, to understand how Jesus meets that need, it's helpful to look back at uh, where Israel is at the moment that he arrives. So we're going to look at like 3,000 years of, of history of Israel in the next like two minutes. Um, so Adam and Eve are created, they're put in the garden, um, and, and then they sin. They fall, they're kicked out of the garden, and God, um, as they're leaving, he says, you're leaving my, my fellowship, and I'm going to put curses on you and, and on the serpent as well. So he gives Adam and Eve uh, these curses and then moves on to the serpent. And what he says to the serpent is, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So this is the first prophecy all the way back in Genesis 3, the first prophecy about the coming Messiah. The one who's going, to, who's going to crush the head of the serpent, who's going to crush sin and death. So in the meantime, while we're waiting for this, this Messiah to come and crush sin, uh, we have a sin problem, and that is resulting in separation, alienation, the end of fellowship between God and man. Um, this sin problem creates this barrier that we cannot overcome. So as the Old Testament uh, goes on, we have this, the account of God setting up his, his chosen people. He chooses Abraham, then Isaac, then Jacob, and, and establishes his people, the people of Israel, through this family. So eventually, uh, God's people end up living in Egypt for 400 years, um, and then until God leads them out through Moses. 
And as Moses is leading them to the promised land, uh, they take a detour through the wilderness for roughly 40 years. And then um, God gives them the law and what we call the Mosaic Code. So this law, it governs everything that they do um, from what they wear and eat to what, uh, when they do and don't do certain things to the holidays that they celebrate. Um, and it even uh, it, it includes a moral code that they are to live by. It's also where the sacrifices uh, that we see throughout the Old Testament are set up, the sacrifices for sin. The law is how God separates his people from, from the people around them. So this code, this, this law of Moses, is still in place uh, when Jesus is born. So in, in the Old Testament, God also institutes certain offices to lead and serve his people. We have the prophet, who is someone who brings a, a word from the Lord to his people. They're a messenger. We have the priest, who's established uh, by the law, who's the in intermediary between God and man, um, and goes to God on behalf of the people. And then we have these kings. Um, and they're, the kings are meant to lead the people um, as God instructs them, instructs them to do. So the kings were established um, after Israel entered the promised land um, and basically were the result of, of the complaining of the people of Israel. Uh, God had warned the Israelites, this is a bad idea. The kings are not going to be good to you. They're going to deceive you. They're going to lead you into sin and they're going to, um, they're not going to treat you well. Um, so, but rather than waiting for the king that, that God, uh, the right king, the God that was the one that God would send, they demanded a king right then and there. They wanted to be like everyone else uh, that was around them. The king was meant to be a servant uh, of God to lead the people. And the reality, um, as Israel soon found, was that that was not the case. That's not how the kings would be. Um, but even so, God's design was that these offices, the prophet, the priest, the king, would be how he would interact with his people, how he would relate to them uh, in the Old Testament. So as the Old Testament uh, keeps going, we see Israel starts um, under David and Solomon with this great kingdom. Um, and it's a, a glorious thing, and then it very quickly starts to go downhill. Eventually, after Solomon, um, the kingdom splits into two. We have the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Israel, um, and they both end up being completely overrun by their enemies and exiled. They get hauled off out of the land um, of Israel, out of the promised land. So eventually, they get to return. So the exile ends, they get to return to Israel, but things are not as they were. The temple's been torn down, the city's been torn down, um, it's in ruins, and even after they're rebuilt, they just do not have the glory that they once had. Um, and so the people of Israel have this situation where they remember how things were. Some of them were very young when they left, um, but uh, they, they remember how the, the temple was. Um, they remember how glorious it was and, and how it pointed to God and things like that. Um, so we have the people of God who've been given the law. They've been spoken to by his prophets. They've been led by kings, most bad, uh, but a few of them good. But now they're a broken people, and they're, they're pining for the glory days of Israel. They're pining for hope. And as it turns out, this is also where we find ourselves um, without Jesus. We're lost, we're broken, we're desperately in need of hope um, and in need of someone to save us. And Tristan made that very, very clear. So now that we kind of have a, a picture of where Israel is at this time, uh, let's look again at, at Romans 3. So picking up in verse uh, 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. At first glance, um, this could seem like, hey, he's just talking to Israel. They're the ones that have been given the law, so therefore this only applies to them. But um, as, as Tristan pointed out, and as we see here in verse 19 as well, uh, it's clear, the whole world, everyone 
is in violation of God's law. We see that very clearly uh, in Romans 5 as well. In verse 12, it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So we've got both a corporate sin problem and an individual sin problem. We are corporately all sinful. We have a sin nature that we've inherited from Adam. In addition to that, we've all individually chosen to sin. We are individually sinful. It's a both-and uh, situation. So all people, Jew and Gentile alike, are under judgment. So then we move to verse 20. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law can't justify. Uh, following the rules, um, whether it's the Old Testament law, some other religious philosophy, general rules of niceness, or just trying to be good so that Santa brings you presents, it's not going to make you acceptable uh, before God. We're all judged by the law, and we all fall short of it. There's no almost, there's no good enough for government work. There's just, we don't get close. Uh, James 2.10 says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And in case you're wondering, nobody fails in just one point. Like, that's, <laughs> that's hyperbole. Uh, we all fail in a lot more than one point, and so we are all entirely guilty of the whole law, or of, of violating, breaking the entire law. So everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, has a sin problem. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is guilty of violating God's commands. Everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, is accountable to the law. We have not only a sin problem, we also have a law problem. And this seems like a bad thing, and, and it is a bad thing. We're, we're under, under sin. We are completely slaves to our sin, and we're separated from God. It's real. It's insurmountable. We cannot fix this problem ourselves. But there's actually good news in being judged by the law, too, and it's that, and it, that the Messiah who comes for Israel also comes for us. Uh, Jesus is the Messiah of all. He came to be our deliverer as well as the deliverer of the people of Israel. So when Jesus comes, uh, he comes to, we needed Jesus to come to fulfill the law. And when he comes, uh, he does so because we need him to deal with our sin and bring us back to fellowship with the Father. That fellowship that was broken when Adam and Eve left the garden. He does this, accomplishes this by fulfilling the law. Uh, in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in Romans 7, um, Paul says that the law is holy and righteous and good. So Jesus didn't come to abolish the law because it's good. It was, it was put in place by God. So what does it mean for Jesus to fulfill the law, and why is that good news for us? Uh, it means that Jesus came and lived sinlessly, never failing once. He did the work that we could not do. He obeyed perfectly and was perfectly pleasing to God the Father in every respect. And the result of that uh, we see in Romans 8, uh, verses 3 and 4. For what God has done, uh, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, which is the advent of Jesus, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So it's not just Israel that needed Jesus to fulfill the law, it's us as well. And Jesus did. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And, and we see in Romans 8, 4, that by Jesus fulfilling the righteous requirement of the law, we get to claim that we have fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law as well. He did that work um, because we could not. 
So he frees us from condemnation. He gives us um, this status as having fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And this is the hope that he brings to Israel. This is the hope that he brings to us in his advent. But when Jesus came, uh, most of Israel was not looking for, uh, for someone to fix their sin issue. They were not looking for someone uh, to fix this separation issue, to bring them back into fellowship with God. They were looking for a king who was going to come and primarily be a military leader who's going to defeat all their enemies and bring them back to the glory days. Uh, they wanted someone who's going who's to make all their dreams come true and, and make, them, make them happy again. Most didn't understand that their need was much deeper than not wanting to be oppressed by a government like Rome or some other kingdom. They had a true need for a Messiah, a deliverer, to take care of their real problems, sin and separation. But just like we don't realize until the Father opens our eyes, we don't realize the depth um, and the, the true nature of our need. Um, Israel didn't, most of Israel, did not realize the, the depth and the true nature of their need either. They knew they had a need, they just didn't understand the true nature of it. They needed one who would fulfill the law, and they needed one who would come and carry out the offices that God had put in place, uh, these offices of, of prophet, priest, and king. They needed one who was going to come and be their true prophet, who was going to be their true priest, who was going to be their true king. Uh, so first, they needed uh, a true prophet, and this is where we're going we're gonna, to um, hang out for a little bit, talking about prophet, priest, and, and king. Uh, the prophet in the Old Testament was one who would bring the message of God to the people. These were men and women who received a message from God and took that message uh, to the people. When I was a kid, this was kind of a glamorized thing. I learned about most of the prophets from Flannel Graph. And uh, yeah, I mean, Flannel Graph was a great thing, but Flannel Graph was also G-rated. And so a lot of the things that actually happened with the prophets and, and throughout the Old Testament, you don't get all of the story because... Um, not all of it's G-rated. So uh, when you go back and look at it as an adult, you realize it's not such a glamorous thing after all. Um, these priests actually had a pretty tough job. They would go to the people often with a message that, that they did not want to hear or whoever they were talking to. You know, we have da uh, uh, the prophet Nathan going to talk to David about his sin with Bathsheba. We have uh, the prophet Elijah going to talk to Ahab and tell him what a bad king he was and what terrible things were going to happen. Um, they were not welcome uh, they were not people that, that uh, the kings or the people of Israel really wanted to see or hear from. Most of them carried a message of, of needing to repent, of needing to flee from the idols. Um, they were Debbie Downers and Johnny Rainclouds. The other problem is that the people were always having to wait on the prophets for a word from the Lord. Um, they weren't, you know, God was not speaking directly to the people. He's speaking through the prophets. And so there's this barrier, the separation where God's not commu communicating directly with the people. Um, and so the people longed, even though they were, there was some, some uncertainty in what that message was going to be, they longed to hear from, from God. Um, so there's this anticipation, this desire to hear from him, mixed with a sense of dread, like, what is this message going to be? What are we going to hear? So those are the Old, Old Testament prophets, and they stand in contrast to Jesus. John 1 tells us that Jesus is the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John 14 tells us that Jesus is the truth, um, the way, the truth, and the life. So Jesus, then, is the true and final word from the Father. In Jesus are all the promises and the messages of the prophets fulfilled. In Jesus is good news. The angel tells the shepherds, I bring good news of great joy, which would be to all people. So never has there been a truer message from the Father than Jesus. He is the word. 
So Jesus came to be our true prophet. Uh, next, we needed Jesus to be the true priest. Now, the priest is the intermedi intermediary between God and his people. He goes to God on behalf of them. Um, he makes sacrifices, takes their prayers. Uh, but again, there's this picture of separation, this, this one that goes between God and man. There's only one person, the high priest, who could enter the presence of God, the holy place, the most holy place, and they could only do that once a year after extensive uh, purification rituals. The sacrifices they offered were temporary. They had to be repeated because the people continually sinned. Um, and the sacrifices also did not take away sin. They only covered it over. They deferred the payment until a later time. So the priests in the Old Testament um, had, had three big problems. And actually, this is true of the, the prophets and the kings as well. Uh, one, they were human and sinful themselves. And we actually often see these, um, the kings and the prophets and the priests actually leading the people into sin. They're not just, you know, neutral. They're actually actively leading them uh, into sin. Uh, the second big problem they had is that they died. Uh, they were people that lived 70 or 80 years, and then, you know, they died like people do. So we had no permanence in the priesthood. And the third and biggest problem with the priests, again, is that man just had no direct access to God. They had to go through the priest to get to God. Jesus, as our priest, stands in contrast, and he accomplishes two key things. Uh, one, as, as priest, Jesus is the intermediary who removes the barrier between God and man. He became a man while fully retaining his godness and dwelt among us. And in doing so, created a direct connection between God and man instead of one that depends on a human priest. As the priest, Jesus gives us unhindered access to the Father. In, Rome, in uh, Hebrews, rather, 4, 15, and 16, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. So because of Jesus alone, we can confidently approach the throne of God. And the second thing that Jesus does uh, is he, that he is our true and final sacrifice. So all these deferments that took place in the Old Testament sacrifices, Jesus completes that. He is the final sacrifice um, because he's the only one that is qualified to take away our sin. We see this uh, in Hebrews 9. Um, where it says that Jesus did not offer himself repeatedly, um, but as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus, our priest, our sacrifice, puts away sin once and for all. He finally and completely deals with our sin. Couldn't be accomplished by the Old Testament sacrifice. Couldn't be accomplished by obedience to the law. Um, he had to do that work. And Hebrews also tells us that he is a priest forever. So now there is permanence to this office of priest that, that didn't exist before. We needed a permanent solution to our sin, to our separation, and Jesus is that solution. He came to be our true priest and our true sacrifice. And finally, uh, finally of these three, uh, we needed a, a, the true king. So the king is one who was meant to come and lead the people in righteousness, to, to lead them according to God's instructions. And that was not the reality that, that Israel had um, with their kings. They had, they had wicked kings. Um, out of the 42 kings, 30 of them were just outright wicked. Um, the, the 42 kings between Israel and kingdom of Israel and Judah, um, 30 of them were just outright wicked, leading the people actively into sin. So Israel wanted and needed a good king. And again, Jesus was not the king that they were looking for. They're looking for this military leader, and he is not that. Um, much in contrast, he was not the king that they wanted, but he was the king that they needed. 
The New Testament's clear that Jesus' kingdom is not a physical one, but a spiritual one. Jesus did not come to restore the earthly kingdom of Israel, but instead came to institute the kingdom of God. John the Baptist, uh, when he's, he's um, doing his ministry before Jesus' ministry starts, says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. In his ministry, Jesus rejected the attempts to make him the king of Israel. And to Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Ephesians 1 says the Father has put Jesus far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And 1 Corinthians 15.50 says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And then in Ro- uh, Hebrews 1, I keep saying Romans instead of Hebrews. I don't know, don't know what that is. must be because we're in Romans. Hebrews 1 uh, says that your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So Jesus came to bring in the true kingdom of the people of God, one that would be permanent, one that would triumph over evil, a kingdom for true worshipers of God. Jesus is not an advisor. He's not our yes man that's going to give us a thumbs up to whatever idolatry we're chasing. He's the one who puts his law in our hearts, leads us in righteousness, and is victorious over sin and death. Jesus came to be our true king. And finally this morning, um, we needed the virgin birth. Colossians 2.9 says, For in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus is fully God and fully man. And we call this, uh, speaking of theological terms, the hypostatic union. And it means that it's 100% and 100%. Jesus did not give up his godness to become man. And he is simultaneously 100% man. As fully God and fully man, uh, Jesus is born to a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. So this is important uh, for three reasons. First, uh, the virgin birth shows that salvation comes from God. Just as the Messiah was conceived by a work of God, not the effort of man, so salvation is given by the work of God, not the effort of man. A second, the virgin birth makes possible the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus. Uh, God the Father could have created a body for Jesus in heaven and sent him down, but then we would have a hard time wrapping our minds around his humanity. Um, likewise, he could, have, he could have had two human parents, and God said, well, this is, my, this is my son. This is God. But we would have had a hard time wrapping our minds around him being God. But because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit through a virgin, we can more easily, though not fully, not perfectly, um, we can more easily grasp the idea of Jesus as both man and God. And third, the virgin birth makes possible the true human- humanity of Jesus without inherited sin. Uh, Luke 1.35 says that the child to be born will be called holy. Uh, Nothing sinful can be called holy. Um, Jesus is born completely sinless, and that is only accomplished because the Holy Spirit, through through, um, conceiving Jesus, is able to divinely interrupt this uh, chain of the sinfulness passed down from the parents. So by being born to a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit, Jesus could come both as man and God, which is the only way that he could fulfill both the human and the divine requirements of being our Savior. Uh, Tristan mentioned earlier that, you know, as we were looking for this, uh, looking for a passage, um, and we came to Romans 3, it was like, this is really good. Like, it really does define our need well. But it is very much like, hey, Merry Christmas, you're all terrible people without any hope of of fixing yourselves. Um, But that really is truly the beauty of Christmas, right? And it's the, the beauty of the advent of the Messiah, the coming of Jesus, 
It's that we're all totally helpless, Jew and Gentile alike. We're mired in our sin. We have no hope uh, of getting rid of it. No hope of removing the separation between God and man, of restoring fellowship. Uh, But then Ephesians 2 says, But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is for Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, Romans 15 says, again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse, which is Jesus, will come, even he who arises uh, to rule the Gentiles. In him will all the Gentiles hope. So Jesus was born to be the Savior of all nations, of all people. He was born because we needed someone to deal with our sin. He was born because we needed to be made alive. He was born because we needed the true prophet who would bring us the final word from God and be the final word. He was born because we needed the true priest who would pay the penalty for our sin and bring us back to the throne of God. He was born because we needed a true king, the true king, who would establish the kingdom of God forever and lead us in righteousness and conquer sin and death. He was born because we needed a Messiah that was both God and man to be our redeemer. Jesus came to restore us to fellowship with the Father. He invites us to that. He offers us life and fellowship and restoration. The word Advent means arrival. The arrival of Jesus meant the arrival of hope. Um, And I had actually forgotten that the first candle was hope, so this worked out really well. Um, It means the arrival of hope, hope for now and hope for the future. Uh, We needed hope, and and Jesus brought it. He came as the hope of the Jews, and he came as our hope too, the only hope um, as it is. So in Jesus alone is hope of forgiveness of sin and restoration to fellowship with the Father. Uh, Advent is a chance for us to slow down and reflect um, so as we slow down and as we reflect this season, that's a really hard thing to do, isn't it? Like Advent is a really good time for us to slow down, but, but Christmas is such a busy season that just makes it really difficult to actually slow down. Um, but as we intentionally uh, slow down and reflect, let's consider how the coming of Jesus met our deepest needs. Let's reflect on the Father's provision of a way um, to, for, to forgive sin and restore fellowship uh, with him. And let's reflect on Jesus as the true and better version of of our deepest uh, desires. Uh, Father, we, um, we thank you for the season of Advent. Uh, we thank you um, that Jesus came and that he did meet all of our deepest needs, um, the ones that before you opened our eyes we did not know about. Uh, thank you that before we even recognized our need that, that he had already solved, had already solved that. He'd already paid the penalty for us. He'd already provided a way for us to be forgiven of our sin, a way for us to be righteous um, before you and all because of him. And Father, we, just, we ask that as we enter this season of Advent, um, that we would reflect, that we would slow down, and, and we, would, we would think of the coming of Jesus to meet our need, and we would think of um, this already but not yet, um, that he has met our need, um, but we're still waiting for his, his return. So just give us, give us mindfulness, um, that that we need to we need to be aware, Father, of of the longing that we have that we still have for the return of Jesus. Uh, Father, we um, we just thank you again so much um, for this time this morning. We thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that um, Jesus became um, flesh and dwelt among us, and that He is the final word for us. In Jesus' name, Amen.